Welcome back to America's leading higher education podcast, The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. Hosts Dr. Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Liba, and producer Elvin Freites bring you the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We explore innovations, ideas, and issues in higher education and beyond, and hopefully have a little fun along the way. Now let's get to it. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your audience? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience responds to? Are you spending more time building reports than listening in on what your audience wants? These are not easy questions to answer. That's why our great friends at MDT Marketing are offering a free audit of your marketing efforts. Head to www.mdtmarketing.com edup and submit your information for your free consultation today. Look, guys, you got nothing to lose. It's free. I don't know why you wouldn't want a free audit to tell you what you're doing, whether it's effective, and how you can make some incremental changes that can make a big difference moving forward. That's www.mdtmarketing.com slash edup. Welcome back, everybody. This is the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business, interviewing the brightest and most influential minds in higher education today. We do like to have just a tad bit of fun along the way. My name is Dr. Joe Salustio. Today, I am guest host-less. Elizabeth um, was indisposed. Unfortunately, she couldn't make it. But I know from talking with my guests before this episode began that we are not going to have a hard time getting through awesome information she is in the on the line right now. Her name is Dr. Julie Woolman, and she is president at Widener University. Julie, how are you doing today? I am fine. How are you? Well, another day in paradise, Julie. I spend about 17 hours a day here in my bedroom. Um, <laughs> I envy anybody who gets out of their house. I, I, I make it to the garage to lift a weight every now and then, and then yes. right back in the bedroom. <laughs> right now, I'm staring my sandwich in the face. Uh, as soon as we're done with this episode, I'll eat here in my bedroom. But anyway, enough about my story. How are you and what's what's going on uh, with you and how's your health and how's how's everybody around you right now? All good. All good here. Everything's good. The weather's beautiful and all well and the vaccines are rolling out. So mm -hmm. looking good. And have you been going into your school, Julie, or have you been in and out at home this whole time? Talk to me about We've that. We've been working primarily remotely. We have about 20% of our classes in person this spring. And of course, we have some essential employees who are working entirely on campus. But we've asked those who can work remotely to work remotely to reduce the um, any transmission of the virus. And we've, we have a robust testing program. We actually have had less than one half of 1% positivity rate through the semester. And at this point, really no cases in the residence halls at all. But keeping people working remotely is just another way to manage it until everyone is vaccinated now. So I've been working primarily remotely, but I do go into my office about once a week just to see how things are going and um, check in with everyone and, and be there for the people who have to be on campus. Yeah, I mean, shout, shout out to those. Uh, we very, you know, I think seldomly in higher ed do we recognize the people that go onto the grounds and keep the buildings safe and right. the pipes pumping and the lights turned on. And there's just okay. a group group of people that 
um, throughout higher education in multiple capacities that are just the road warriors and going in there this entire time because they had to. And, and it's always important to recognize those folks, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. They, they keep the place going. That's it. Well, let's talk about Widener University a little bit. I, I always uh, I'm a, do my research beforehand. I check out websites. And one of the things that struck me when I came to your website, and I think this is a, a real positive, right when you get to the site where a student would come to apply, there's a little line that I haven't seen before. And I thought it was like, wow, that's really cool. Major in instincts, tenacity, and real world experience. Yeah. And I, I was like, okay, wait a second. Is that a major? Oh, no, I think that's the university. That's the experience. That's about what you do. So talk to me about why you have that there in that way. So our focus is on um, getting the inside track, having those experiences and opportunities, the networking, the internships, the co-ops, the research experiences with faculty that prepare you um, to be ready for not just your first career, but the, um, the many careers that you're going to have in your, in your uh, life, as well as to learn to be tenacious about making a difference in the world. So our mission is empowering our community of learners to create better futures. One sentence, you can't forget it. Um, you, part of creating better futures is creating a better future for yourself um, and it, through a career and for your family. And part of it is the responsibility to create a better future for all of us in, in our uh, local and global um, communities. And so we're, we believe that we're preparing students very broadly for those things, whether they're undergraduate or graduate students. One of the, one of the, I don't want to say it's been a knock on higher education because I think, uh, and I'm going to ask you about this later about the, the trust uh, from the public trust in higher ed. And we'll get to that in a minute, but one yeah. of the, the pieces that I think has come to the forefront is the concept of an ROI return on investment. Yeah. The, the um, embedded traditional curriculum that is based on theory, the theoretical, and now students are coming in much more interested in the practical, uh, getting, you know, getting to do it, right? Learn by mm -hmm. doing it, mm -hmm. getting ready for my future mm -hmm. career by practicing what I'm going to mm -hmm. actually do when I leave college instead of looking back on, like I look back on some of my college experience and go, well, I don't never had a need for any of that stuff that I took. Right. But, and, and so I think colleges are moving in the direction of we're going to get you ready for the real world. Is that what students are telling you? Do you, do you feel that sense amongst your student body that we want practical experience? We want to learn by doing. I think everybody wants that, but that doesn't mean that they don't need theory and they don't need some grounding in understanding why they're doing what they're doing. Because you can have practical experience, but when the approach you're taking doesn't work or you run into a problem without having some kind of theoretical or research background to fall back on, how do you know what to do? So there's, it's an it's a, uh, um, integration of understanding the theory and research that are the foundation for your field so that you can be an effective practitioner. And our students get both of that, both of those. They, um, as I said a few minutes ago, internships and co-op experiences are very important. Research experiences with faculty members, um, and certainly in our in our graduate programs, where so much of the focus is on actually 
um, having those opportunities to do the, the work that students are preparing to do, um, it's, it's, it's very, very important. But we recognize that what, again, you may, this may be your first career. So learning practically how to do one thing doesn't necessarily prepare you more broadly for the kinds of analytical thinking and the kinds of um, thinking with, um, with care, with, with attention, with compassion about what you're doing as a professional and as a community member. There, there's a lot of discussion, as you know, given all of our social um, unrest that we've had, that there's a, there are increased, um, I don't know what you want to call it, the highlight on the essentialness of human skills, our ability to communicate, our ability to have respectful discourse and think about our world. You, you hit your site and you talk about the Widener education being distinctive. And there's a talk of civic engagement, common ground initiative, which is, you know, mind-blowingly yeah. important today, yeah. and sustainability. And how important are those, those um, human? I'm gonna go like human humanity-based skills mm -hmm. in that problem solving, in that critical thinking, right. in applying that theory. So I call them critical skills or power skills, because you can't do any career without them. Right, soft um, skills. Soft skills is the old way I to say it, and they're not soft, right? Soft skill, right? I am. A, I am. I, when people say soft skills, I'm like, don't use that term because they're not soft. They're strong. They're powerful. They're what cut across any career. You've got to be able to connect with people. You've got to be able to communicate successfully. You've got to be able to think through a problem and solve it. These are. Um, these are skills that cut across any discipline. So I think they're incredibly important. The Common Ground Initiative that I started back in 2017 is another aspect of that, Under learning how to listen to people and understand where they're coming from. It's so easy to make quick judgments, quick decisions, um, you know, not listen to people who you don't agree with. And, and not take the time to find common ground. But that again is a skill that will help you in your career and in your community as you figure out what do we share? What are we trying to accomplish? Where are we trying to go with this? Maybe there, we do have more in common than we think in a world where we're increasingly polarized in terms of our beliefs. So part of our responsibility as a university is to prepare students to be active, effective citizens in their communities, but also in their careers. A leader, um, a, you know, in a, whether it's a leader of a team or, or a, you know, a big L leader, a leader of an organization, needs to be able to understand the people they're working with and bring people together to be effective. So I think all of these pieces work together to create a really interesting tapestry of preparation that set our students, really give them the inside track, as we say. Let me ask you about sustain. Uh, by, by the way, I, I noticed that you personally um, will host common ground uh, conversations, yes. which, I, you know, the best way to lead is, is to lead from the front and, um, you know, uh, uh, practice what you preach, so to speak. So I give you so much credit for doing that. And, and that's such an, uh, you know, what I'm, I'm huge on those. Um, say what you call them again, say uh, uh, the human skills, 
the, the, the uh, critical skills or power skills. Yeah, the power skills are so, I like power skills. Uh, power skills are, are so important in, in what's missing that really created so much of the discourse and, and um, uh, brought diversity, equity, and inclusion back to the forefront in a huge way because we were failing to communicate, because we were failing each other um, in so many respects with our dialogue, with our actions, and so on. And you talk about the commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion at Widener, any um, unique initiatives you have going on there, the Common Ground series is obviously one of those. Right. Right. Um, but any others that you have going on that you're proud of that you'd want to talk about um, to, to facilitate that diversity? Absolutely. So we have um, our chief diversity officer reports directly to me, and we really work as, as partners. Um, and um, Nikki Davis is her name. And, and Nikki is um, running all kinds of um, professional development opportunities, as well as, as gathering data on what works and, and what we can do differently. So um, among the other things we do is we have monthly diversities with a T-E-A-S and um, where uh, people gather to address a particular issue um, in, you know, related to uh, diversity. Um, we also have a diversity leadership inclusion council, which is co-led by um, our chief diversity officer and our provost. Um, broadly representative of the university. It's focused on moving us forward in terms of diversity and inclusion initiatives and also paying attention again to the data because I think we have to look at equity gaps and how we close those and whether we're making progress and what actually works in, in doing that. The um, other thing that I'm very proud of is something that we've uh, been thinking about for a couple of years and have established in our um, Faculty Council, which is our, our faculty governance body, a very, very strong and outstanding um, governance body that we have at the university. And we work very closely uh, with our faculty governance. Um, we just established a diversity and inclusion committee for the faculty council. And I don't think we've established a new committee for the faculty council in a long time, but there was very strong support for that to pay attention to what we're doing in terms of the curriculum um, and the student experience in the classroom. So we think we have, a, a, you know, we're, we're doing things in a, in a lot of different areas and they're all very, very complementary, um, and together make a, a significant difference. We also have our principle called we're all Widener and we repeat that all the time, um, which is really about, you know, we're all, part of this community. We're all valued. Um, it's an inclusive community and we need to continue to remind ourselves we're all Widener. How have you found, actually, before I get to that next topic, I do want to, you talked about student experience. So I want to come back to that for a little bit because the civic engagement part of a student experience is, I think, an important uh, thing to facilitate. I, I more young folks coming in are more interested in civic engagement. And I saw a stat on your website that said you have 79% of Widener undergraduate students engaged in service or civic engagement, which is 27% higher than the national average, which seems massively outstanding. Yes. How do you facilitate that? How, is it like a, you know, uh, it's just been a snowball rolling downhill to get to this point and there's well, we peer pressure for yeah. great civic right. engagement? Right. It's very much um, infused into a lot of our classes. So we have a, um, 
faculty um, service learning professional development initiative that's run by faculty. So faculty who engage service learning in their classes, which is one aspect of civic engagement, have um, teach others how to do it. And we have faculty fellows in service learning. So we support them financially to, to do this work. Um, we have um, uh, Center for Civic and Global Engagement. So we have leadership in this area where we're looking. And I think when I think of civic engagement, I think that the problems that we're dealing with locally are also global problems. And I want our, our students to understand that. But if you're dealing with um, health inequities locally or education inequities or um, food insecurity, those are local problems. And whatever you're learning about them and how to address them can be used globally because these are, um, these are issues that are global issues. So you're taking something away from this experience that you can use anywhere to make a difference in, in our world. And you have a responsibility to do that. We have um, a number of special programs. We have a, a service core program. We um, have all sorts of opportunities for students to do volunteer work as well as infusing service learning into the work they do. And actually, I am very engaged in civic engagement myself on um, as a um, something I do in addition to my work. Um, I actually teach classes for credit at our local state prison. So Good I think you. again, you talked about you know the the um, leadership, uh, you know, seeing that it's coming from the top and and the difference it makes when you can see that not only do we say we do it, but we um, everyone is is involved and and is making a difference that way, and we support it with resources. Okay, so let's um let's shift. Uh, that's by the way, that's great. Congratulations. That's uh, anybody that's giving back in that way. It's it's such an important part of being an educator, right? Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's just being an educator, and uh, I agree. Many, Right, um, and I think for me, education is transformational. And mm -hmm. if we want to have an impact in the criminal justice system and make it more just, um, it is um, essential to offer education. Agreed. How has your university found um, found through? How have you been through COVID? Did you see enrollment declines? Did you have enrollment increases? Um, did you have students fall through the cracks? Were you able to keep a hold of everybody? Can you talk just about some of the areas um, where you are now, you could talk about now if you want, where areas where you're focusing now that we're starting to hit a point where people are coming out of their shells, so to speak? Um, how, how are you recovering from this uh, yeah. and what's happening? Right, right. Yeah. So we entered COVID in a very strong position financially. So we're very fortunate that way. Um, we, like many other schools, um, we sent our residential students um, home. So we didn't have any students and we didn't have any in-person classes last spring. So we took a, a significant financial hit from that because we refunded all of the room and board. I know some institutions didn't, but we felt that was the right thing to do. Um, we um, encourage, we, you know, we try to support students to continue um, and new um, first year students to come in the fall with a, a bookstore voucher to help them pay for that. We recognize the economic impact of the pandemic. Um, we removed um, a number of our fees and 
really recognizing, again, this is an economic crisis as well as a health crisis, trying to be supportive of our students. We um, in, in surveyed right away to find out who didn't have the technology and connectivity they needed for the remote classes, and we provided it. So we actually had our IT staff driving around all over the place, trying to buy up the last laptops available last March um, so that we could deliver them to students who needed them. So we, we um, were able to provide that kind of support and support for connectivity for students who didn't have sufficient Wi-Fi. We created, um, we did a lot of phone calling. So a lot of our staff who don't normally work directly with students, even staff who work in fundraising, were reaching out and calling students to see how they were doing and checking in with them. We created personal student success teams for our students who started this past fall so that they would have a team with a peer mentor, a faculty mentor, um, a librarian that would help them to understand how to access resources, especially when they were remote, um, and a um, student success um, counselor. So they had a team around them, a network, uh, you know, a safety net to help them be successful. So we found that these things worked. And while our enrollment did drop because we had fewer first-year students coming for the fall, Graduate students stayed about the same. And we are about 53% graduate. So two law schools, a number of graduate programs on our main campus, and then the other 47% of our students are undergraduate. Um, undergraduate is what declined some, but right. what happened with the support we provided was our retention of students from fall to spring increased very, you know, very significantly. So that helped us to maintain that enrollment and showed us um, that the initiatives we were doing were making a difference, that it made a difference to have a personal student success team, that it made a difference to have outreach, that, uh, and we found students were using our services, so career design and development was entirely remote, but we had students using those services, in some cases more, because it was more convenient to click on a Zoom link instead of having to walk into an office where you've never been before and, and don't know the people. Um, and they've actually built the relationships now. So when we go back in person in the fall, they'll be able to um, feel more comfortable with those um, using all those services. You know, there's always that talk of, <clears throat> excuse me, of a pandemic or something that happens that forces us into in, an innovative state in, in response to that. And then you get to see with data how some yeah. of the innovations that you have to run yes. make an impact. And then it's like, okay, wait a second, we, we've, discovered something here. And so mm -hmm. now let's build services. Let's build it out and let's build it for the future. So that's awesome to hear that because I think, man, higher ed's been lacking that for so long. We talk about that all the time here. And then it's a typically overall higher ed is, is slow to move or at least was. I mean, I think we showed our absolute best in time of crisis yes. as an industry. However, we are dealing with, and this is, I, I kind of foreshadowed this question, and it's, I think it's one of the most important questions we have to deal with as educators in higher education. There, there's a question of the value of a college degree right now. I mean, I was on Clubhouse. I don't know if you're familiar with Clubhouse. It's a mm -hmm. social, social media app. I'm on Clubhouse. Mm -hmm. And the name of the room is, you don't need a degree. All right. And so I get on there. And this is what concerns me about this entire conversation. I get on there. And the guy who is leading the room uh, has retired at 39 years old because he invested some money in Tesla and made $12 million. 
And the advice being given by these investors, some of these investors was, you don't need a college degree. You can make it without the degree. And I'm going, well, what if you don't have the sense, which I didn't, I didn't invest in the stock market when I was doing to invest in the stock market, to take a cloud computing course. I I, I use myself as an example. There's no way I'm sitting down to learn cloud computing. It is not my... I, I mean, I guess I could learn it if I was forced to, uh, but it's not of interest to me in the slightest bit. Right. What do all of these other people do that aren't going to be able inv- uh, in, invest in the stock market, that aren't going to be able to to sit down and take technology courses? Maybe they're not technologically inclined to 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 advise not to go to college. I get the costs. I get the all of that. It just seems dangerous. And so anyway, that's my, t- I'm soapboxing for a second, but what's your take on that, the value of a college degree and how we should be looking at that inside higher education? If you're experiencing any level of marketing challenge right now, you've got to ask the hard questions and you need answers. Are you using the right mix of channels to get in front of your future students? Is your messaging personalized and delivered in a medium your audience and future students will respond to? And are you spending more time building reporting than listening in on what your students really want? All of these questions will get answered when you sign up for your free consultation with MDT Marketing. Head to mdtmarketing.com slash edup, submit your information, and talk to MDT. Don't go it alone. Find the right partner. The guys at MDT, the team in MDT is absolutely amazing. Whether your challenge is the cost of inquiries, your melt, your branding, the bad and incomplete information that come with your inquiries, whatever it is, an audit of your challenges will help your institution and it's free. mdtmarketing.com slash add up. Well, I think we have to be thinking about that. I mean, it's a very, it's, it's an investment. It's an expensive investment and there has to be a return on that investment. People care about the value. Sometimes I think it's seen as in a more narrow way than perhaps is realistic as we talked earlier about these the, the skills that may prepare people for a variety of jobs even though they may not seem to be very specific to a particular job we're fortunate at Widener because our we're so focused on um, programs that lead to very successful careers so we our, our areas of specialization are primarily in the stem areas um, health sciences engineering um, and even we have a, a strong school of business, but even there, we're, we have a lot of interdisciplinary programs with you know, sustainability management, for example, with the sciences or um, a and one of the um, uh, nationally recognized MBA programs with a specialization in healthcare management. Um, we have collaboration between biomedical engineering and nursing. So these, um, these collaborations and it, this interdisciplinary work adds value to what students are getting because it gives them opportunities to do different kinds of things when they get out. And they're in programs that lead to very well-paid careers. So we have outstanding data on the, um, the salaries that our students make when they graduate. And then five or 10 years later, they're really um, very, very strong. And part of that is because of the programs that that we offer and the opportunities for networking and internships and co-ops that we offer. Um, and you know, we we think that that is um, that that is very valuable, and it it, it shows um, 
you know, how well students do. But the other important thing is, do they get jobs right away? And our, and our data on six months out, our recent graduates um, are very, very strong. So, um, you know, our most recent data, we had 96% of our students had the job they were looking for or graduate school if that's what they wanted um, six months out. Um, and then, um, you know, we'll see, I think, some, a little bit of decline in that with the pandemic as it's been harder to get jobs, but still very, very strong for, for our students because of the kinds of, of um, careers that they're going into. So we're very aware of that because families can't make the investment unless they think there's going to be some return on that. There's no question. The data are absolutely clear, and it's you know it, it's not coming directly from colleges and universities. It's coming from economists that you earn a lot more with a college degree than without one. Um, but you have to get the degree. It's interesting. You have to have the credential. Two years of college does not make a big difference if you haven't gotten if you get an associate degree, of course. But if you go three years you're not gonna have that big salary increase. You need the credential. There is some really good data on that. It makes a difference. It makes a difference in your annual income and it makes a huge difference in your lifetime income. So there's no question that there's value and a return on investment, but we have to help students find what they're gonna do, what they want to do and how they're gonna make money doing that when they get out, because realistically, it doesn't matter. You can love what you're doing, but if you can't make enough money to survive and, and do well, then that's not good. So we want them to do both. You so think it's a, is it a marketing problem in high, for higher ed that we, we have these advantages? I'm talking about the industry in a broad sense. We're just not communicating in the right way. Do you think there's a, a, a maybe mm, a division of institutions where there are just some that are able to provide that ROI ability and well, we think, have some that don't yeah. yeah i think i think um i think it's partly a sort of a broader marketing program for higher ed as, as a um as an institution you know that we haven't done a great job of showing how much of a difference it makes but i also think a lot of this is political and there's a you know there's just this political sense of well it's too expensive and they're all you know you hear these ridiculous things like, well, they, they, you know, they go every, every student comes out with $100,000 in debt. No, that's not accurate. There are some grad programs where students come out with that much, uh, but they're going to be making an enormous amount of money as well. But that is very, very unusual. So what you read in the news media are the extremes, not the, because it makes a good story. Um, not what that happens to the average student. When we talk about Widener, we give actual data on salaries earned, percent of students who get jobs, what they do, um, the specific jobs they go into, how we guide them if they change their minds midstream in, in their program. We, we still have to, we, you know, our, our commitment is to help them um, find the job that they want and to be successful. Um, so I think the notion that universities are thinking, oh, they're just here to have an experience, we don't care about the job, is just false. I don't know any university that is, that is doing that. Um, but if students start and don't finish and they end up with debt and no degree, that is really not a good thing. So our responsibility is to help them finish. Um, and I think sometimes the stories we hear are about students who start and aren't able to finish, 
Um, and then they really are in a bad place because they're not earning the salaries and they do have the debt that they may have taken on in order to, to be in school. Higher education is an incredibly good investment given you know, the salaries you make when you come up at the end, but you've got to go all the way through it. You've got to finish. And we have to support students to finish. That's where I think we need to put our focus, not on, you know, the value is there if people want to look at any of the data. We need to do a better job of communicating that, obviously, and take it out of the political realm. But what we really need to focus on is making sure everybody finishes so that they are able to achieve that return on investment. You, what you said, just my, my head just started buzzing because I'm going, exactly, right? The student that we've, uh, and it depends on how you want to look at it, but if a student goes to school and doesn't finish, the university bears some responsibility there. If we failed that student in some way, that's the worst marketing you could ever have because that student comes out, they have debt and they go, I shouldn't have done this in the first place. College isn't worth it. All I did was get a bunch of classes I don't need and that I didn't do well in and now I have all this debt and so why did I do it? It's it's more rare, you know, that the student who's got that bachelor's degree and gets into a job goes, oh God, what a waste of time that was, right? No, that doesn't happen too often. Right, right. So, I mean, that's so key, like that different, that differential that you just stated is so key. It's, we have a responsibility in your point yep. to keep those students in and finish them off. Cause when they get yep. finished off, they usually will go on to get a job and they'll look back on their degree as a, a catalyst towards work instead of a reason that it affected their life in a negative way. I mean, that is so on point, Julie, thank you for bringing that up. I, I just, I don't think you could have, no one could have said that better. I think you said it perfectly. Well, thank you. Um, it's, and if I, there's one big takeaway from this episode and I've, I've a hundred and I don't know how many of these we've done. That's kind of the first time it's come up in that way mm-hmm. where, you know, we talk about the value of higher ed. We talk about, you know, this and that, and, you know, yeah, you can go get a six figure job. If you can, you know, uh, you have cloud computing ability and you can go get a six figure job. Absolutely. You might go back for your education at some point mm-hmm. for, for the majority of Americans that are still going to go to college. If they finish, they usually don't question the degree value. That's right. That's I mean, that's so critical. Yeah, to be left with debt and, and nothing is a, is a tough position to be in, yeah. um, for sure. Well, let's talk, a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, let's talk a little bit about um, uh, marketing. I want to just ask your opinion mm-hmm. on marketing. One of the things that I've thought, um, and I've asked this question to a number of, of the guests we've had on, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had a lot of folks uh, come out into the news, higher ed's in trouble, 25% of the institutions across the United States are gonna fail and, and, and close. And we've seen some, we've seen some mergers, we've seen some mm-hmm. here and there. I, I would say it's a heck of a lot less so far than yes. anyone thought. Um, but there might be more, right? Because if you were in trouble a year ago, you might've had a year or two of operating um, uh, uh, funds left. So you can kind of make it, but now everybody's gone digital. Geographic boundaries are, are down. Um, you know, you can go to any school online, there's going to be somebody offering something. So the value proposition of what a school offers needs to really be distilled so that students understand what they're going to get. How important is digital marketing? How important is internet presence? How important is social media toward the future of, of marketing for colleges and universities? Well, I mean, I think it's not just important for the future. I think it's important right now, and it has been important. And those who do the best job at digital marketing 
are going to be much more successful. And part of that is targeted digital marketing. So not just putting ads out on Facebook or wherever students go. I guess Facebook is for old people now, but wherever <laughs> young people go. Um, it's true. It's true. It's if you have a Facebook account, you're you're like 60 or over, right? <laughs> well, cer certainly 40 or over for sure, because, uh, but yeah, it's TikTok today, I think is, is the main, yeah. uh, main one. Um, so in any case, you, um, you know, I think that that is, that is incredibly important, but it's really about targeting to the right group. So figuring out who's going to have interest in what you're offering and who, sh who you know, who, clicks on something and then you want to follow up with. So, um, you know, so much of it is really about um, using that digital marketing very, very strategically and being very, very knowledgeable about how to use that. But you also have to have something to back it up, right? Like we can't say Widener gives you the inside track and not have evidence that you're gonna make a better salary and have a much better chance of getting a good job. You've got to be able to back up what you say with data. And that, you know, that, that's something that we, um, we really work on. And different students want different things. I mean, some students want convenience. They want an online program and they want the convenience. That's what's most important to them. And for others, it may be they want that in-person experience. They want an experience on a campus. They want the other things that come with that. And I think what we're recognizing in higher education generally, and certainly at Widener is, we have to adapt to what our students want and need and that our student body is, is changing and, they're, and they have expectations. I mean, look, when we wanna buy something now, we, have lot, we can Google it and find the place that has it, um, exactly what we want, that, that can offer it to us the way we want it, that can deliver it in the time frame we want. We make very knowledgeable decisions about what we're going to, to buy and we want convenience, but we don't think about what we offer in higher ed that way. We don't think about how can I make this more convenient? How can I reduce the friction? How can I um, you know, offer what, what students are looking for so that we get that student instead of someone else? That's really what our new strategy is all about. Um, I, I'm, I'm gonna just go um, uh, knowledge bombs. I'd love when we get a college and university president on here that's talking the marketing piece, um, it, it, reducing friction is a key, key marketing tenant today, right? It's it, to your point, you can get it. Amazon will deliver it to you same day. Sometimes if you, if you get yeah. it early enough in the morning, yeah, Absolutely. Yes. if we make it hard to choose a college and university, the student will navigate to the easier one and not easier to get in necessarily, but the easier one to find. And, and, and then they'll, they'll narrow down their choices on what was easier to find and that was easier to understand because yeah. it's speed. Yeah. They have a limited attention span. We all do. I mean, yes. gosh, when's the last time, Julie, you picked up your phone, you were reading the news and then the next thing you know, you closed the news and you opened up, a, oh, a, yeah. cl closed CNN, opened up NBC, and then you navigated right. Right. to Amazon all within 15, 20 seconds. It's, mm -hmm. students are the same way. I, I'm, you, you're... I'm just, this episode is just going to kill it. I just love to hear this kind of, um, 
uh, enlightenment about the future of higher ed. I do want to be conscious of your time because I know how busy you are and uh, give you our last two questions that we have here that every guest gets at the Edup Experience. Number one, what didn't we cover about Widener University that needs to be said? Any initiatives that you have that are going on? Anything that you want to just drop about your university in general? And number two, what is the future of higher education going to look like? Okay, well, um, I'll start with number one. <laughs> number two, I, I think you might need um, a wizard to tell you that, but I do have a lot of thoughts about it. You sound so, like a wizard. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, uh, one thing I'd like to mention is our, is our approach to strategy. So we started a strategy development process about a year ago where um, I said, we're not doing traditional strategic planning. Traditional strategic planning is outdated by the time you're done, you get this menu of goals that really aren't strategic at all. They're good things, they're table stakes. They're what you need to do anyway in order to compete. Um, and a strategic uh, plan that says something like increase enrollment or, um, you know, increase net tuition revenue, like that's your business. You, that's not strategy. That's like business. That's how you survive. Strategy should help you thrive. And so we, we started a process where we were focused on strategy that was going to be overarching. We weren't going to have a specific plan that sat on a shelf and collected dust and had all kinds of goals that people had to constantly think about. How do I make it sound like what I'm doing fits this goal? Um, and um, I think that that's been, that's been very powerful and people see that this is a different way to think about the future and it is adaptable. So our strategy is, is agility experience and it's about being agile and having an exceptional student experience, which comes back to this issue of reducing friction and making it easier to do things that have always been very bureaucratic in higher ed or in any organization. So the students can focus their, um, on the rigor of their of their coursework, of their of their academics, of their research, of their internships, and as we think about um, agility, we recognize that our, our goals are going to be constantly changing. The, the, higher ed was changing very rapidly when we started this process right before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic has only accelerated that. So we need to be in a place where not only is our strategy development innovative, but our strategy itself allows us to adapt and constantly meet the needs. And we have a strategy to action team that's focused on implementing some of that work. And they're using design thinking. They're using fail fast and um, you know, take a risk, try something out, pilot it if it doesn't work, learn from it and do it a different way. And so this is a really interesting approach that's quite different from other universities. I think that traditional strategic planning is dead, essentially. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be helpful. It's traditional. Going forward. Yeah. yeah, yeah, traditional strategic, exactly. Um, so that's one thing I, I think is really interesting that we're doing. To answer your question about what the future of higher education looks like, my greatest fear is that it becomes a bifurcated um, set of two systems, one for the elite and one for everyone else that is 
lower that is inexpensive but lower quality and doesn't provide what everyone deserves. I think you know higher education is a public good and everyone who wants it um, and wants to advance themselves should have an opportunity to um, to get higher education. But we can't have two systems: one that the elite can pay for, and the other that is a lower quality. You know, this is what you can get. Um, so I think we really have to think about how we are going to adapt to meet the needs of our students and to, to think about our business model and how we reduce our costs as universities so that we can lower tuition and provide greater access. Um, and I think we'll see some changes. There will be more students who may want some of their education online. We'll see more hybrid because now we've seen that works. I know we have a lot of commuter students, undergraduates, almost all of our graduate students are commuters, who say, you know, I love coming to campus, but I love it if my class met on Tuesday in person and on Thursday it was it was online so that I didn't have to make the commute. I think we'll see a lot more of that kind of flexibility to meet the needs of students um, and potentially think, you know, we have to think about how we can lower our costs as universities so that we can um, maintain and, and increase accessibility for, for all students. I think we'll see some mergers and acquisitions, but I don't think 25% of institutions are going to close. You know, in higher ed institutions <laughs> have, uh, have uh, the ability to survive through a lot of things, and, and they do survive. I'm not satisfied with survival. I want us to thrive, and that's where we're focused. Hey everybody, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Edup Experience. To learn more about the Edup Experience, please visit our website at www.edupexperience.com and subscribe to our email list. Please share this podcast, head over to Apple, and please give us a rating and review. We appreciate your feedback. And of course, subscribe to the Edup Experience so you're notified when our episodes drop. Here at the Edup Experience, our goal is to make education your business. Thanks for listening.